Hey everyone, and welcome to Sincerely Letty. I'm your host, Letty Shoemate, here to bring you truth and knowledge about history, social issues, life, and more to help you connect the dots and see the bigger picture that is so necessary in our society today. I'm really glad that you're tuning in. This is episode three in my Jim Crow podcast series that I've been doing, and this week's episode is going to be focusing on traveling while black in Jim Crow America. I actually just did a lecture on this topic last Tuesday at the Bellamy Mansion Museum in Wilmington, North Carolina. I've titled it Driving Without Privilege, the Negro Motorist Green Book. And, hence the title, I focused on the Negro Motorist Green Book, which was later known as the Negro Traveler's Green Book. So I'll be uh, using a lot of my uh, lecture information in this podcast episode because why not? And I know there are some people who live in Wilmington or in surrounding areas that really wanted to um, hear my lecture and weren't able to make it. So I've had quite a few people message me to ask me if I'm going to be doing it on my podcast. So I was like, sure, why not? Um, And it fits right in perfectly with the Jim Crow podcast series that I'm doing. So, worked out perfectly. But before I jump in, of course, I want to talk about some current events and things like that. And the first thing that I do want to address is the fact that Halloween is right around the corner. And with Halloween being right around the corner means people are going to be dressing up for Halloween. But in dressing up for Halloween, let's remember that cultural appropriation is never okay. So this is your reminder that dressing as a Mexican man, um, I'm sure you all have seen the costumes with like the sombrero and um, colorful clothing and the big mustache and holding a taco. Yeah, that's, that's not okay should never, no, that's not okay. Um, Or dressing as a Native American princess and wearing feathers in your hair and braiding your hair and um, wearing face paint and makeshift moccasins. Yeah, no, that's also a big no. No. Also, these, there's people out here that are like, I'm dressing up as Pocahontas. Pocahontas was a child. And also, Disney got the whole story. This wasn't even right. It wasn't even correct. So, let's not do that either. And the biggest no for me, all of these are no's, okay? But please, do not do blackface. Blackface is 1,000, 1 trillion percent. Never okay. Neither is brownface. Neither is yellowface. Um, and... Remember, going back to episode one of my Jim Crow podcast series, when I'm talking, whenever I was talking about the origin of Jim Crow, um, it was a white man who painted his face black and mocked black people. And throughout history, we see uh, the racist stereotypes of black people um, through white people who wore blackface. So, in order to actually progress then don't do things like wear blackface don't do that just don't do it um and there's a plethora of other um costumes out there that are just a hard no for me like one is dressing as a terrorist but the terrorist costumes are 
the red checkered um, headgear and white outfit and I've even seen people post things or yell out things about Muslims and I'm like okay well um, if you really want to dress like a terrorist perhaps you should just dress like a white man in America just saying because those are the terrorists in our country just saying uh, that probably definitely stepped on some toes, but it's the truth. Um, and don't dress like a geisha. Don't appropriate Asian American, don't, I'm sorry, don't appropriate Asian cultures either. Just know. You could always dress up as not another person and, also remember that appropriating and mocking cultures is racism. Absolutely, it's racism. So, that's what I have to say about Halloween costumes. Don't be a racist. The next thing I want to get into for a couple minutes before getting into this week's episode is reviews and ratings for my podcast on different platforms. Um, please review uh, please share my podcast with friends, with family, whoever. Um, definitely share it with people you know need to be called out on privilege, on fragility, on truth, on history, on all the things that you all know that I talk about. So please um, share my podcast. Also, follow me on Instagram at sincerely.letty. And whenever you do follow me on Instagram, please feel free to share my posts. And if you do share my posts or you do want to repost my posts, just tag me, please. And even like, you know, your Instagram stories, I'd really appreciate it if you'd also tag me there. Um, because this allows people to um, be able to click and go straight to my page to see more things that I post. And it's just... It just helps. To be quite frank, it just helps with um, traffic to my Instagram page and things of that nature. So I really appreciate that. You guys are awesome. I know a lot of you have been doing that and I really appreciate it. So now let's get into this week's episode. Like I said at the beginning, I will be talking about traveling while black in the Jim Crow South and North and West and all over America. Okay, because people want to just say Jim Crow South, but I'm like, no, no, Jim Crow was rampant everywhere in this country, not just below the Mason-Dixon lines. Very important and it's very crucial to remember this whenever you're reading history and whenever you're um, looking at racism in history. So, um, I... Like I said, also at the beginning, I did this lecture last week, so I will be taking information from that. And um, the Green Book, I know you all have heard of the movie, The Green Book, but eh, that movie, um, the acting was great. Wonderful acting. But the story of The Green Book was um, not shown as much as it should have been. And I feel like the movie focused on the white savior who um, was the driver 
and how he had this change of heart and see everything's good if you have a change of heart and then you're not racist anymore but that's not that's not how it works and so from a historian's perspective watching that movie i saw it as problematic um whenever it comes to contributing to the discourse of history just because it favored um like i said the white savior complex but anyway uh the green book itself there's so much history about it that hasn't actually been written and even whenever i was doing research for my lecture I was uh, researching specifically for Wilmington, North Carolina locations, and I found 52 locations in Wilmington because I um, did a ton of research, and I found a collection that had every green book in it except for six or seven of them, but it was in the Schomburg collection um, provided by or at the New York County Public Wow, New York County, New York City, I'm sorry, public library. So I'm online scrolling through all these green books. Um, I love doing this research. A lot of people don't, but I love doing it. It's just half of the fun. And I, yeah, it was just great. I'm just telling you all this because it was just really great to actually see this history, make these connections that had not been made yet, connect the dots and deliver the information Um to people to educate and inform and even in that while researching I was able to see just how traveling while black in Jim Crow America also allowed space for togetherness and community and unity among black people and I thought that was just amazing but before getting into the Green Book any further right now, I do want to back up and give you some historical context because like I've told you all many times, anytime you look at something in history, it is important to remember that it does not happen in a vacuum and nothing is isolated. So let's start with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. So these amendments were all passed, okay, between 1865 and 1869 to basically solidify equal rights of recently freed um, black people. And the context with this as well is the inst institution of slavery was so pervasive in American society beginning in the 1600s up until the end of the Civil War and whenever these amendments were ratified. So these amendments granted freedom from slavery, the promise of citizenship, and equal protection, and the right to vote to black men. So further, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which declared all people born in the United States as citizens. The Enforcement Act of 1870, which prohibited voter discrimination based on race. And then the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which granted black people the same rights to accommodations, facilities, and privileges as white people. But despite legal freedom and rights that black people had won, white Americans continued to remain resistant to their equal standing. So they often turned to violence through vandalism, beatings, lynchings, rapes. And then there were hate groups like the KKK, which was founded in 1866, um, which as we all know, resorted to extreme intimidation and violence to maintain the status quo of racial hierarchy. So 
further, like, members of these groups were really punished. And for most black people during this time, any sort of newfound freedom was stifled because they had to work long hours for low wages. And most um, became sharecroppers and renters, remaining landless and largely impoverished. However, there was a small but growing black elite, and the estimated 10% of black Americans who rose to become successful professionals and entrepreneurs, which were namely doctors, politicians, writers, lawyers, um, they were able to enjoy this heightened sense of freedom. And one benefit of their new economic and social status was the ability to travel and partake in hospitality, tourism, and other leisure services. Early travel experiences during 1870s and 1880s generally consisted of planned group excursions. So whenever I'm um, telling you this, I want you to paint a picture not of all of these free black Americans um, traveling and having this. That's not how it was. There was only a small percentage that were actually doing that. And even with, okay, the, this new freedom, um, there was a high, high rate of white intolerance of racial integration on any level. And it was very apparent to black travelers because white people still insisted on segregated transportation options. And Throughout the later part of um, the 19th century, so we're talking um, like mid-1880s to 1900, um, legislation was passed that basically stripped civil rights of black Americans. And as all of these laws tightened, black Americans found it increasingly difficult to travel freely. An example of this is 1883. And in 1883, the Supreme Court found the Civil Rights Act of 1875 to be unconstitutional. Right. That doesn't even sound right, does it? No. Um, And what this did, though, is it effectively prohibited any federal oversight of private citizens and businesses regarding racial discrimination. After this ruling, um, many states passed laws allowing segregation on railroads. And the most notable case in this line of court decisions reinforcing discrimination, segregation, and white supremacy occurred in 1896 with Plessy v. Ferguson. I'm not sure if you've heard of Plessy v. Ferguson before, but um, in 1892, Homer Plessy was a white-passing black American, and he was arrested after boarding the whites-only section of the East Louisiana Railway. This arrest was actually part of a strategy to expose this arbitrary nature of the mandated segregation of railways in Louisiana. Through the court system, however, uh, Plessy's conviction stood. When it reached the Supreme Court in 1896, the court argued the Constitution could only enforce political and civil equality but not social equality. And that if segregation did not inherently mean um, racial inferiority. That's, wow. Let's just think about that for a second. So basically the, the Supreme Court said, 
Yeah, so um, the Constitution allows you to be here, but the Constitution does not allow you to be here. Does not allow you to have any equality. That's pretty much what was said here. Um, And with this decision came separate but equal. um, And this separate but equal accommodation and racial segregation became firmly legalized nationally throughout the United States for over 50 years. And this effectively did force black Americans into an inferior position based on race. These court decisions made a clear physical distinction between white and black spaces and contributed to the control of black mobility, affecting the ways that black people could move um, throughout society. The institution and enforcement of racist laws and legalized segregation became known as Jim Crow, as I've talked about before. And under Jim Crow, black Americans were relegated to the status of second class citizens and Jim Crow represented the legitimization of racism. And in talking about travel and mobility, it is important to see here that white supremacy during the Jim Crow era um, effectively try to control the movement of and therefore deny full freedom to black Americans. Historian William Cohen discussed this and described Jim Crow as a time when Southern black Americans lived at freedom's edge suspended between the world of slavery that had once been theirs and a world of freedom that still belonged to mostly white people. And Americans were met with discrimination in other aspects of travel as well. So you have motels, restaurants, hotels, gas stations, and more that were closed to black Americans entirely. Some businesses served black people only at certain locations or on certain days or hours. And if they were served in white establishments, then they got crappy food. They did not even get service usually. And um, this is actually a preface to what was to come with segregated facilities during the Jim Crow era. But what's important to note here is despite the annoyances, inconveniences, or dangers posed, an increasing number of middle and upper class black Americans continued to seek the same travel opportunities as their white counterparts. While there were some white-owned businesses that did serve black people and people of color, usually in big cities, though, um, black Americans came to provide their own businesses to cater towards black clientele in order to circumvent um, segregationist barriers to travel. By the 1920s, there was also a rise in the recognition of black Americans as a viable consumer base specifically in larger cities. It is important to note here too that the 1940s brought the second wave of the Great Migration. So 1.5 million black people left the South, okay, around this time. Right here is whenever World War II comes into play as well beyond just being 
World War II, um, it was actually a golden age for travel because highways started to expand and there was a rise of services such as like chain restaurants, motels and gas stations because there was a rise in these because there was a rise in an expansion of the highway system. And throughout history, we see that leisure became a signifier of wealth. So as more black Americans were gaining wealth, middle and upper class black Americans were gaining the ability to travel more regularly, an act which publicly inferred affluence, success, and freedom. So what was an integral addition to traveling in America? The automobile. And in 1908, Henry Ford had designed and began to sell um, his Model T, which we are all familiar with. And by 1927, more than half of American families owned cars. Now, while black people still maintain relatively low ownership rates, I mean a lot lower than white Americans, by post-World War II era, Automobility had been firmly cemented in black culture. And so you also, with this, see a rise in black publications featuring articles on car ownership and travel. With the rise of the automobile and the road system throughout the 20th century, black Americans gained this new way to exercise their mobility and their freedom through travel. But due to the implications of automobility, cars came to um, symbolize a newfound autonomy, and it allowed black Americans to affirm their place in American society. Black Americans saw this hope and new freedom in automobiles, uh, physically and socially, and cars came to symbolize a world where there was no black or white. And whenever you think about travel and freedom and mobility, also in your mind, connect the dot that, or connect the dots rather, that Black people were so excited to have this freedom because they were not free before. So they were in bondage for centuries. So now they have the opportunity to do whatever they want to do, but they're continuously running into segregation issues, racism, and still this uh, not obvious, but also obvious, uh, control over what they still could and could not do with themselves. Not only did the car indicate physical escape from Jim Crow's realities, but also the accessibility of a new social, social position for black Americans. For those who could afford to own a car, it became a reaffirming symbol to themselves and the outside world of their rising social status and movement into the middle or upper class. Serving to distance their owners from the poverty and lack of property that define many black Americans in the 20th century, cars became a public display of wealth, prestige, respectability, and progress. 
pop culture and the media for black people also started to show how important it was to be able to move how they wanted to and drive a car. Like Ebony Magazine, there were um, articles that talked about driving and talked about Cadillacs and ownership and the freedom to um, express uh, yourself through a car. And then you have artists like Chuck Berry and his 1950s rock and roll songs um, that expressed a strong faith in mobility as a guarantee of dignity, democracy, pastoralism, and equal opportunity. And he also featured uh, Cadillac in his songs and um, connected this to Black Americans' claim to citizenship. But... While automobility offered some amount of freedom and social status to black Americans, for many white people, it actually increased this sense of needing to reinforce segregation. So while black Americans were able to escape the inhumanities of segregated public transport, white people were able to escape sharing public transportation with other races. Because again, important to note is that even though some black people did own cars, there was a huge majority of black people who were still subject to segregation of public transportation because the freedom of having a car was not afforded to everyone. And while automobility did mark progress for civil rights and made the lives of some black Americans easier, it in no way stood for equality, even on the road. True freedom on the road was only a white privilege. Black people did not have freedom while driving. And road travel was still dominated and orchestrated by white citizens and was still subject to racial inequality. Traveling while black in America brought with it a lot of unknowns on the open road and a lot of inconveniences a lot of difficulties a lot of life-threatening violence and in some cases many cases uh fatal violence so these anxieties black people had uh, while frequently absent from white people's narratives um, are featured in a lot of road narratives by black americans Chester Himes, um, a black writer, discussed a frightening 1946 cross-country drive in the North. He said, Literally, none of the white people en route who operated hotels, motels, restaurants, or or even local YWCAs or YMCAs would serve a clean, respectably dressed couple in a new Mercury car. Because of this, um, you know, stories like Chester Himes, um, black motorists were denied some of the freedom that white people felt on the road. And to avoid some of these inconveniences, black Americans would often prepare food for roadside picnics. They would bring pillows and blankets for sleeping in their cars. And even even whenever they did sleep in their cars, not everyone could go to sleep. So someone would have to stay awake to keep an eye out in case, oh, I don't know, a truck of white men drove by and wanted to know why they were sitting there minding their business. Or, oh, I don't know, if a cop drove by 
and wanted to harass and question them. Also, ditches on the side of the road were used for bathrooms. Just think about that. Think about if you're traveling anywhere today and you're driving. And yeah, I you're probably thinking in your head, I've used the bathroom beside the road before. I mean, sure, I'm pretty sure we all have had to do that maybe at some point. Well, that's a big generalization, but you all get what I'm saying. But I mean, can you imagine how it felt to feel like you're an animal that couldn't go anywhere to use the to use the bathroom? And then think about stopping on the side of a road in the middle of like the night. This isn't 2019, y'all, where there are streetlights on the side of the highway or on some back roads. There's no light. And yeah, just it's important to make history real and to put yourself in those shoes. Another thing black people did is they packed extra gas. Why? Because one of the only gas stations that would allow black people to um, fill up or use the bathroom were SO service stations. And that wasn't even in every part of the country. So travel could quickly become embarrassing, dangerous, or even deadly for black people. Then there were also places called sundown towns. And black people were warned to avoid sundown towns, which were all white communities, where there were unofficial rules that forbade black people from being there after sundown, hence the name. And in some cases, there were signs posted at the city's entrances um, that warned black people, uh, don't let the sun go down on you here. Or uh, they would have derogatory and um, racist names for black people and um, say, you don't belong here. Get out of our white community. And can y'all believe that there, uh, it is estimated rather, that there are or there were um, no fewer than about 10,000 of these town and towns and cities across the country. Again, not just in the South, in the North, in the West, and many of them were in the West. Uh, isn't that crazy? Like, you wouldn't think that, right? Because too often, when it comes to Jim Crow's history, only the South is focused on. And that's not true. There were also a lot of sundown towns in Illinois, Indiana, Ohio. There are some in Pennsylvania, New Jersey. New York had quite a few. And you would look at history and you think, oh, it wasn't the, it wasn't the North. The North was good. The North, we had great people in the West. Oh, the West was welcoming and there's California. No, that's not the reality. That's a sugar-coated version of history. So another thing about sundown towns is there always there wasn't always a sign posted. So you could go into a town with no idea that you weren't allowed to be there. And if you did go and you didn't know and there were some white people who were angry that you were there, 
because they thought, or they assumed that you thought you were too good to obey the rules, or they looked at you and saw that you had a car and you were a black person with a car. Oh, no, no. White people did not like that. That was a threat. And for more context and knowledge about Sundown Towns and history that's written about them, there's only one book I found, um, and it's called Sundown Towns. And it's by uh, a historian named Jim Lowen. He wrote it in 2005. But it's one of the only ones I've found that even begins to talk about and look at Sundown Towns. And in case you're wondering how you're able to gauge where Sundown Towns may have been, one way to do this is to look at census records. So you can look at the census and see the number of black people who lived in a town versus white people, or you can look at the years that it looks like the black population fell. And you wonder what happened for this to occur. And it's a, it's a hard history to reckon with if you, especially for places that you um, wouldn't think would be sundown towns. Even here in um, North Carolina, I was looking and there's quite a few places that could have been sundown towns. And there's three that uh, actually were sundown towns based off of, or what you can argue were based off of um, census information. But anyway, I could talk about sundown towns for another whole episode, but more about traveling if you're black. Uh, Just some other little notes here. Um, It was known advice that black people should drive below the speed limit because they could just be stopped for going one mile over. Or um, some black drivers took road trips at night and it was harder for police to see uh, their skin color. If you were black, and let's say this was um, during the Civil Rights Movement, let's say this is 19, uh, 1953, okay? And you're black and you're traveling with uh, two white people who are civil rights activists and you're traveling to, um, let's just say, Alabama. And... Uh, what you would have to do is the two white people would sit in the back and the black person would sit up front like they were the driver because then it looked like you were um, inferior to the white people because you're driving them around. Or if you were a black person and you're traveling by yourself in a car because God forbid you have a car and you're a black person, uh, you could put a hat in the back of your window and it would um, make it appear like you were a chauffeur. And so if I could, um, or that it was your owner's car or your employer's car. And if a cop stopped you, you can just say that it wasn't your car, it was your employer's car, and you just work for them. And this actually can be connected back to the um, the slave note, where slaves used to have to carry a pass to walk anywhere. Um, they had to carry a pass to so people would know that their owner knew where they were. Once again... This goes into the conversation about freedom and mobility and the ability to move how and when you want to. Being followed by unidentified cars while traveling, taking long detours, which also meant spending more money on gas, um, driving around and driving around while being followed by unidentified cars until you lost them. All these things were very common and all these things could, they incited fear 
and they were intimidating to black people and it continuously made black people remember their place in society but even though this happened black people did not stop traveling they were so persistent and they were just the resilience of black people in history is absolutely amazing it just is and it honestly y'all it it makes me feel so proud to be black in this country because my ancestors went through hell to make sure that their families were still able to experience what they know they were afforded to what they knew they deserved in this country and on this earth for simply living and breathing and so another thing about traveling in Jim Crow America uh, is the occurrence of fatal violence because white America's rage towards black people um, is very evident throughout history. It's sugarcoated a little bit, but it's also evident if you read the right information. in 1948, Robert Mallard was traveling with his family in Georgia, and they were attacked. Uh, he actually was um, the one who was attacked in his car, and he was murdered right there in front of his wife and children. Yes, murdered with shotgun. Why? Because he was allegedly too prosperous and not the right kind of Negro. He was simply living while being black, and he was pulled from his car, brutally beaten, and then shot in front of his wife and children. Are we talking about 1948, or are we talking about 2019 America? Because this is why I always say that racism hasn't gone anywhere, it's only evolved to look a little bit different. What, back then it was a mob stopping you, right? Okay. Well, 2019 America, it's a traffic stop. And you're reaching for your wallet or you're reaching for your registration in your glove compartment and then you're shot and killed in front of your wife and kid like Flando Castile was. So, yeah, connect those dots. Journalist Cortland Malloy Jr., um, writer for the Washington Post, um, remembered his own experiences as a young boy in the late 1950s, riding in the backseat of his father's Buick special on the long ride to grandma's house. He said on the evening before such trips, um, his mother would fry chicken and boil eggs. It was 1958, and the trip through Louisiana, Mississippi, and Arkansas was hell. With every request from Malloy and his sisters to stop so they might relieve themselves, his father became more tense and seemed to speed up. Um, Cortland said, Those back roads were simply too dangerous for parents to let their little black children out to pee. Overnight accommodations posed an even greater problem. Black people had to plot their trips from town to town with the stealth of a scout so they wouldn't get caught on the road without anyone to take them in. As Malloy remembered, um, so many black travelers were just not making it to their destinations. So, what did black people do to address all these issues they were having within their communities while traveling? Well, they created guidebooks as early as 1930. 
um, some of these publications were Hackley and Harrison's Hotels and Apartment Guide and Travel Guide. What these guides did is they provided valuable information for black travelers, listing businesses, gas stations, motels, restaurants, barbershops, and so much more, even like bars and nightclubs um, that would serve black people. And the most widespread and longest lasting of these guides was the Negro Motorist Green Book. And it was created by Victor Hugo Green in Harlem, New York, and was published from 1937 to 1967, 30 years. And there was an edition that came out every year. The first edition aimed to give the Negro traveler information that will keep him from running into difficulties, embarrassments, and to make his trip more enjoyable. That's actually what the Green Book said on the inside, um, like the first or second page. And some history about Victor Hugo Green, the creator of the Green Book, um, he was a U.S. Postal Service employee. He was born um, in New York City in 1892. He worked uh, for years for the United States Postal Service as a mail carrier in Hackensack, New Jersey, whenever him and his wife moved there. And... um, Then they moved back to Harlem, New York, and he continued to be a mail carrier. Being a mail carrier also brought with it uh, this entry way for black people to become classified as middle class. So quite a few black men had this job, and the way that Victor Hugo Green was able to know about Green Book locations and put them in his Green Book editions was through other mailmen throughout the country. He actually started thinking about the Green Book in 1932 and then published the first one in 1937. Initially, uh, Green traveled to inspect listed locations for accuracy and condition himself. But soon, he needed a more efficient way to obtain information, which is where the mailman come into play. He used his connections through the United States Postal Service, and uh, he was able to get information about all of the locations that were available, which ones uh, were new, which ones were no longer in use, which ones did not get good reviews, which ones people were happy about, all that stuff. So he was so adamant about this because he knew that the safety of black people depended on it. By 1940, the guide had clearly grown um, with listings for 43 states as well as Washington, D.C. And by 1949, the guide actually covered the United States, Bermuda, Mexico, and Canada. Over time, listings continued to be added internationally in South America, the West Indies, Europe, and West Africa. The growth of the Green Book can clearly be seen just in the increase in its size. So... The 1937 edition was 15 pages, and then um, the last edition in 1967 was 99 pages. There were more than 9,600 Green Book sites, and 85% of them were Black-owned. You could buy a Green Book at Black-owned businesses, Black churches, um, the Negro Urban League, through mail-order advertisements from 
Ebony Magazine and Jet Magazines, and you can even buy them at Esso gas stations. Victor Hugo Green's ultimate goal for the publication of the Green Book was that it simply would become obsolete and his business would no longer be needed one day. In 1948, he wrote, There will be a day sometime in the near future when this guide will not have to be published. That is when we as a race will have equal opportunities and privileges in the United States. It will be a great day for us to suspend this publication, for then we can go wherever we please and without embarrassment. Victor um, Hugo Green actually died, though, in 1960, and his wife continued to maintain operations for the remaining years of the publication. Though he was able to see some of Jim Crow legislation begin to fade out, uh, he unfortunately did not survive to see the signing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which outlawed racial discrimination. While this act did not immediately end discrimination, it did give black people legal recourse to defend themselves against injustice. This act did also effectively render the Green Book obsolete, and the organization was, um, would publish its last edition in 1967. These final issues expanded, like I was saying earlier, on international information, and also they streamlined certain, um, certain types of businesses like hotels and motels and things like that. And, yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that... Uh, Victor Hugo Green didn't get to see um, such monumentous uh, legislation being passed where his Green Book was no longer needed. But right now in America, um, it does seem at times like we do need another Green Book or something because there are still so many places in this country where I, as a black woman, uh, know that I don't need to go. Matter of fact, where I grew up, there's a couple of places where I know I'm not wanted after dark. Or I know not to get caught there after dark. And then some other things to know about the Green Book. Uh, the Green Book was like a Bible to black people. It was um, in like the, the locations. And the Green Book itself, too, was like an overground railroad. This secretive path and... Like, yeah, the secretive path and map to know where you were safe as far as, like, laying your head down at nine and things like that. And uh, I know you all have heard um, the Route 66 song. Well, interesting enough about Route 66 is there weren't many green book locations out there. So... Whenever you're thinking about the Green Book and this history in Jim Crow America, and you can't think about it like, oh, well, there are plenty of places for black people to stop. No, no, actually, there were not. Um, if I was traveling right now from Wilmington to um, Washington, D.C. in 1945, there were maybe uh, two or three hotels or motels where I could stay, or there was one gas station where I could stop to use the bathroom. Maybe. Or there were four um, restaurants that I know I could stop at. Maybe. So, just think about the 
the persistence and the resilience, like um, I was saying earlier. And then another thing to note about the Green Book is a lot of these locations were people's homes. So you would drive past a house and that could have been a restaurant. Like maybe you're looking at your Green Book and um, there's a beauty parlor, okay, or a barber shop and you um, are passing through this town and you want to get your hair done because you want to look nice and you want to feel good because people were still people and they still wanted to feel happy and they still wanted to enjoy themselves. And so I, I, I know for a fact, researching places here in Wilmington, I uh, took the time to go to many of the Green Book locations uh, that were in the book and I was driving and uh, these are just people's homes. Like people... Um, still live there today but that's because it was this gives it the this image of an overground railroad where someone's house was like someone's living room floor was the uh barbershop or maybe the front porch was the barbershop and you would just you would just go and take a chair out there and sit and get your edge up. Or um, <laughs> like it was a restaurant because a family would open up their home to you and would, um, wouldn't even charge you. Like a lot of these places, people didn't charge people anything to um, feel safe. And that in itself is just beautiful to me. That's where this whole feeling of uh, togetherness and fellowship and community in the face of racism and discrimination is just so evident. And while it's clear that um, this was a dark and difficult period for Black people, um, the Green Book itself shows resistance and it shows determination of Black people to be seen as people that deserved happiness and leisure and freedom to drive on the roads and travel in the country that they built. Because I know that some people would think, well, they aren't the only ones who built the country. No, you're absolutely right. There were um, other people of color that also contributed post-slavery, okay, to building this country. But a lot of this country was built on the backs of slaves, okay? And some of these same people, all not even some, all of these people who were traveling with the Green Book were descendants of slaves. I'm a descendant of, of slaves. So think about it that way. Make it personal. You know, it doesn't have to be this romanticiza- romanticization, sorry y'all, <laughs> of history. But it's important to recognize it that way, that you actually helped do something in this country and didn't get paid for it. And then you're being told that you can't even enjoy the luxury of living while black. And whenever we think about how to connect this to America today, uh, you still have Airbnbs that um, discriminate against people. Or there have been uh, people who have accused Airbnb of being, di- of being discriminatory, rather. Let me phrase it that way. Um, and then you... St- And then, I mean, too, you still have uh, places that don't have vacancy for black people and people of color. And this isn't something that's far removed. Social media actually even has hashtags for this stuff, like hashtag Airbnb while black and hashtag traveling while black. Like, yes, I know, I know. Traveling has gotten easier. 
But there's still this sense of, am I going to have the experience that I want, which is to be free of any racism or discrimination, or is racism going to tap me on the shoulder? And I can say, for me personally, it has several times. So, yeah, traveling is not as hard as it used to be. I get that. But that's not to say that with racial progress, there is still not racist progress as well. Traveling while black and driving while black still comes with racial profiling. It still, com- it still comes with unwarranted traffic stops. It still comes with unwarranted searches and making you get out of your car and making you feel humiliated and embarrassed and trying to figure out or racist people stopping, racist cops stopping you and making you remember your place in society. So history matters. And knowing the history of this helps you to identify why it's so wrong today. And hopefully it helps you jump to not defend those. And not just those who are supposed to protect and serve, but defend those who um, are just regular people that don't treat people right in a restaurant or in a hotel or in a motel. This is still real life. But even though it's real life, there is still that history that shows resilience and resistance. And that same resilience and that same resistance is seen in people in our country today. So that's it for this episode. I hope that, like always, you learn some more. You can go spread the knowledge to other people. Again, please share my podcast. Um, I do this, you all, just as a reminder, not for my own glorification. I do this because I want people to see why it's important to stand up against injustice and to stand up against racism. Um, Because if you don't know the past, then how are you going to change the present? So, until next time.